and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm your host, Mariah Wakande, and today's guest is Vince Edwards. Welcome, Vince. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Um, so you are the music director at Grace Episcopal Church, which is my church, and so we get to spend a lot of time together. Yes, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we get started today, I was just wondering what drew you to the Episcopal Church? Well, I grew up in uh, Tennessee, in a small town, and there were lots of Baptist churches. Um, a town of about 5,000 people, and there were over 40 Baptist churches, mm. um, and a few Methodist churches, and a few Presbyterian churches, so one had to choose from those. And uh, yeah. So I grew up as a Methodist, uh, and, and loved my upbringing, and, and what I got there, both musically and otherwise. And then when I went to grad school in the Northeast, um, I had started hearing about the Episcopal Church from other musicians because I was in a music school, and so um, I thought I'd better check it out. And I went to Christ Church in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, for a service there. And I had it's Christ Church is an Anglo-Catholic church, uh, beautiful building, it's a very fancy worship, incense, professional choir. I, my you know my ears blew off. I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it, and uh, and I knew that there. And honestly, it wasn't just about the the fancy choir and the fancy building. I, that was beautiful. And I loved it, but I I sensed that it was in that tradition where I could best offer what I perceived to be my developing gifts. Mm. And so it was, it was, I've been lucky in a lot of ways in life. And one was that that was real clear for me. I didn't struggle over that. I know some people really struggle about where do I, where do I put my gifts? Where do I, you know, and I thought this is it. Cool. So, uh, so I was able to, uh, my first year in grad school, I was at a little Methodist church and then I but quickly found out about a, an Episcopal church that was uh, open and I applied and uh, got the job, and that was it. Put me on the tra- trajectory. And that first rector that hired me actually grew up at Grace Church in Providence. Oh, wow. So it has been, coming here has been majorly full circle stuff. So Yeah, I didn't even know that. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so the Episcopal Church is really well known for its music, particularly our awesome hymnal. And so I was wondering if you know about the history of the hymnal or, you know, the importance that it brings to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know some. Uh, I'm doing, currently I'm doing a hymn series here at Grace, uh, a video series that I put out every week. People can email me hymns that they're interested in knowing more about, and I, I do a little research and talk about the hymn, and I play the hymn. And so that's been mm-hmm. very well received. People have enjoyed it, and it's made me learn a lot about, about hymnody because many of the hymns you play that you you think, I love this hymn, it's great, it's a good text, pretty tuned, but you don't really know the backstory. Right. Um, so I'm learning more about it. Yes, the Episcopal Church is known for its music. Um, I should say that there's still a very wide spectrum of music in the Episcopal Church. I think, I think when we say that, that it's known for its music, the image that comes to mind is maybe a, an even song with a vested choir singing a fancy Magnificat. And that certainly has been a hallmark of the Episcopal Church. But, mm-hmm. but these days, I think there are certainly congregations that are still known for their music, even though it's more eclectic or broad. So, and that's healthy for the church to, to have that broader scope, I think. We're, we're pretty traditionally based here at Grace, and I, I, I align myself with those places because, again, that's where I think I have the most to offer, um, given my, my skills, limited as they may be. So, uh, but the hymnal was a revelation to me. You mentioned the, the hymnal 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started at this church in Cheshire, Connecticut, all those years ago, 1991, uh, I, I, the hymns were, every page was a revelation. And I would, uh, some of them, a few hymns overlapped with my upbringing, a few things that, you know, that I, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, for example, I grew up singing that as a Methodist. But hymns like, uh, All My Hope on God is Founded, Michael mm-hmm. by Herbert Howells, or uh, 
adora devote, uh, humbly I adore the you know the Eucharistic hymn, especially the Eucharistic hymn, the rich Eucharistic hymns, uh, because that was just not so part of my upbringing, and it was just uh, such a, a special time learning and playing those hymns and every every page i'd be like oh this is this is my favorite this is my favorite <laughs> that's and, how you i know, feel every every hymnal is is flawed by the fact that it's published because as soon as it's published it's out of date that's the problem i mean you know quickly you there are other things you want to put in it or things that you think oh gosh that's that, that's already dated mm-hmm. i wish we had not included that that being said i still think it's of the of the hymnals in publication in the united states right now the hymnal 1982 and it's with along with its supplements wonder love and praise and lift every voice and sing and voices found it's still my favorite hymnal i think it still has the most to offer uh and you know most congre it's interesting about the hymnal most congregations sing about 10 percent of the hymns in the hymnal yeah well so when i started at grace i was so excited to get back into singing in the church and then I was like we are not singing any of the hymns that I grew up singing like I miss these 20 hymns that we sing at my church Mm -hmm. um but you know after being here for almost three years I've just been exposed to so many more and even doing this podcast so I do the music for this podcast and I try to be really intentional about what hymn I choose for each episode and each theme and so even there, I was learning so many more hymns, and I'm like, wow, these are really amazing yeah. and beautiful. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely true. <laughs> and you know, we, we, uh, we've I've tried to stretch the congregation here, at Grace, a bit uh, with hymns, and people are pretty open, pretty open to it. Uh, we choose them based on you know, sort of their alignment with the scripture of the day, or certainly a liturgical theme or a season, uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. And sometimes we just I choose one because. We know everybody loves it, and it's a great hymn. We're just going to sing it. Doesn't necessarily, you know, go with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly nothing, nothing wrong with that. But yes, it's. Uh, we have 700. And, oh, I'm not looking at the hymn. Line. I think it's like 765 hymns. There are over 700 hymns in the hymn book. Yeah. And and probably 50 to 60 would be a, a, a typical sort of repertoire for a congregation. So we're missing a lot by not doing it. One of the things I found out about uh, our hymnal prior to this was the, the 1940 hymnal, mm. and it's so Episcopalian that we had the 1940 hymnal and then the next one was called the hymnal 1982 as opposed to right. the 1982 hymnal it just you know just to confuse everybody <laughs> but um and we still have some of our older parishioners who still say oh i loved it. that you know that was in the 1940 and they didn't make it to this one you know or that oh, and, wow. and that that that's certainly true you know some things were edits were made it's you know hard decisions you can't have a book that's and i, I wonder if we'll ever actually have another hymnal because you know with the advent of uh, of electronics and digital and all of that, we may not have a new published hymnal. It may be supplements that continue to come out to augment what we already have. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things about the hymn series I've done, asking about history, sometimes a very simple little hymn that might be, you know, loved-ish, but not not one of the great hymns of the church. You know, there'll be so much information about it, like really interesting backstory about the text or the tune or how they came together. And this week I just did for our, our upcoming hymns, I did for All the Saints because it's you yeah. know, All Saints Sunday. Well, one of the greatest hymns ever and, yeah. and undeniably tune, text. And so I opened the hymnal. Re- There's a wonderful resource published by Church Hymnal Publication that helps gives you background. And basically it says one of the greatest hymns ever. I mean, it's, it's really, like I was ready for all this exciting interest. It said it's really one of the most profound texts paired with one of the most singable tunes ever written. End of story. <laughs> so, I'm, so really, I'm going to, when I do the hymn, actually, that's getting ready to go out. I'm basically, I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to play the whole hymn. Often I talk about the hymn for a long time and, like, play a verse. Uh-huh. But this, I'm just going to, you know, quit. But anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. It's not always what you, what you expect. Yeah. 
So I didn't know, I mean, it makes sense that there's a hymnal before the hymnal 1982, but being born in 93, this is the only exposure to hymns that I have. So I guess, um, you know, it's interesting to hear there was a hymnal 1940 and that some hymns didn't make it in. Um, do you have any kind of idea about like what, what makes a hymn outdated mm -hmm. or, yep. you know, that choice? Well, the, the Hymnal 1982 certainly tried to address some issues that, that nobody was thinking about in 1940, such as um, gender issues, uh, uh, both around humans and around the image of God. Mm -hmm. uh, also, s s some, around, um, uh, some around cultural and racial issues. It, it's, it, it was, you know, it's weak what mm -hmm. they did, but, but, but at the time it didn't feel weak. They were, they were trying to do something. Mm -hmm. So that was some of what was happening as they made that transition. Um, again, now that, you know, the hymnal 1982 obviously didn't just get popped out in 1982. It'd been worked on in the seventies. I mean, it was a right. while in coming. So it's really old actually is what I'm saying. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's efforts while we're admirable at the time, I think given where we are these days, it feels incredibly, incredibly outdated. I, I just did a, one of the hymns for this week came from Wonder, Love and Praise, one of our mm -hmm. uh, supplements. And it was the hymn, Will You Come and Follow Me? It was written in the, uh, gosh, 70s or 80s. But it was written by a, a well-known hymn writer in Scotland, John Bell, and, and he, he was writing hymns like crazy to address what he perceived were all the deficiencies of all the Scottish hymnals that were published at the time. Mm. So a lot of that, that hymnody came out of the need to, you know, overcome what were the shortcomings, as it were. So it's, it's tough. You know, we, you know, because you sing in the choir here, from time to time, we'll, in an anthem, we'll, we'll edit a word. You know, if we can sing right. all instead of men, mm -hmm. it's a one-syllable word. It does nothing to change the, you know, the, the music. It, it's, it's easy, and there's no reason in the world not to do it. Because, it, you know, it's a little harder with hymns, and I do think that with hymns, we, we don't necessarily need to throw away hymns. I think we need to do what John Bell is doing, which is we need to create new ones that, that really address these things and then let them live side by side. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we could go down the road of it's, it's almost like, it's a little bit like the statue question, you know, do we, do we just erect new statues next to the old ones? Do we tear the old, what do we do? Right. Um, hymns and statues are a little different, but, um, <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, there are certainly male references in a lot of the hymns in 1982 hymnal that if they were being rewritten now, they wouldn't necessarily be the same way. Um, but in those hymns, often there, uh, there's such great stuff in the other stanzas of the hymn that maybe it outweighs it. So you can look and say, you know, here's a male reference to God, uh, you know, and that's probably not what we'd say for writing this now. But the other three stanzas are brilliant in everything they say. So maybe, maybe we'll let the balance weigh and try to do some other hymns that then really offset that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hard and, you know, it's going to be harder as we go along because people are more aware as, as, as we all should be. And people feel it, and uh, the, hymn, the Episcopal Church these days is is quite quite multicultural, really. I mean, in the, you you know, again at Grace, you look around at the wide variety of folks that come here, mm -hmm. backgrounds, cultures, races, ethnicities, you know, sexualities, everything. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that one book is going to address all that, um, but that sometimes is the power, I think, of one of, of some of these hymns, like like a For All the Saints, for example, which is you know this old hymn written by these old guys and the you know, old Latin text translated. And yet it still has the power somehow to speak to people on multiple levels. And to me, that's the real uh, way to evaluate the power of a hymn is if you can have people of multiple ages and backgrounds and everything singing. And, and, it, and it's, it's the glue. That hymn becomes the glue. You know, what's our commonality? It's this for these three minutes that it takes us to sing it. Mm -hmm. I could literally talk about this all day. Um, 
I have kind of like a personal question about the hymnal. You know, it's sectioned off into these different themes. There's, you know, you have your Easter and Holy Eucharist, but then you have things like Christian life and mm-hmm. um, like, ev- I, don't, I don't know if everyday God is one, but, you know, just kind of these more general ones. And what do we do with hymns like where I would really love the tune? I'll just give an example. Onward Christian Soldiers. Mm-hmm. I love that hymn. That's one of the 10 that my yep. old tiny church would sing. And it's really fun. But, you know, the text itself is Onward Christian Soldiers, like off marching off to war. Um, and, you know, there's, there's these war-like themes and it, you know, kind mm-hmm. of calls to the history of the church um, maybe not being in a great light, pillaging and... Yeah. The church militant. The church militant. Uh, I guess I'm just wondering your opinion on hymns like that. Because um, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I still want to sing that hymn, but I don't necessarily yeah. feel that way. Um, it's, again, it's, hard. it's a great question because it's, it's a tough one. And somebody's already requested it for the hymn series. And I'm oh, going yeah. to do it because, it's, in my opinion, the hymn series is an academic exercise. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do it. And, and I'm, and I'm going to talk about this very thing with it. Um, and I grew up with it too. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, we're talking about, uh, so a hymn has a, has a male reference to God, say in one verse. I think that compared to a hymn that is overarching as re, uh, portraying the church as church militant, I think that's a pretty big chasm. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in my book, I mean, you know, it's the Episcopal Church, so whatever the rector says I have to do. But short of a rector saying to me, you must sing on the Christian soldiers, I'd probably never put it in. Yeah. Uh, if somebody wanted it at a funeral, because I, I always say, you know, that, that all bets are off at funerals, because it, at that point, you're not trying to teach or educate or prove. You're, you, you know, you're honoring the person. If, it, if that's what their lifelong dream was to have that played at their funeral, who am I to say that we shouldn't do it? That, that's different than telling a worshiping body of, of the church, this is, should be part of your Sunday morning Eucharistic diet, is to sing all on Christian soldiers. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different things, um, it, in my mind. So, yes, I think one of the things that could happen is that obviously somebody could write a new text. Um, the, the hymnal has, in all hymns have a meter. You probably know this. All hymns have a meter, uh, you know, a rhythmic meter. And then you, the tunes, so you can take some texts and assign them to a different tune. So there might be a text that fits the tune of Onward Christian Soldiers. That's true. Um, and you could do that to get, because it, it's a fun hymn. It's, it's, like a, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's a fun Marching. hymn to sing. Yeah, marchy, marchy <laughs> hymn. Um, so you could you could either edit the text itself, you could alter the text, you have to get permission, of course, see who has the copyright, alter the text. Um, and one of the things, to your question and point about the hymnals and as they change, uh, I'm finding out some of these hymns that we're doing, the very, this very thing has happened, an author writes a text, and then a hymnal editorial board says, we want to use your hymn, but we don't like this word, or that word, or that word, or that word, or this phrase, we're gonna, or we don't like stanza three, we're going to take it out. The, the hymn writer has the option to say, well, no, you can't use the hymn, or yes, make those changes and put it in. Mm-hmm. So that is how some of our hymns have been molded and mel- you know, melted and changed over times. It, 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 it'd be a pretty big one with Honor Christian Soldiers because of the refrain, because <laughs> right. you, know, you get it every time. But you could, you could do it. You could see if there's another text that fits, or, or if there's a, because I actually think that people like the tune better than they do the words. I yeah. think, honestly, most people wouldn't mind giving up the militant language. But they like the they like the marchy tune. Yeah, so. totally. And my dad, you know, growing up when we would sing it right before the refrain would happen, he would always go, "Onward, Christian soldiers! Onward, Christians!" <laughs> and for some reason, everyone in my congregation just loved it. And so now, you know, when my dad is in town or when I'm in town, because I'll do it, because that's how I grew up 
learning it, they'll specifically put that hymn in the service and then they'll be like, are you going to do the thing? Are you going to like do the little refrain part? Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree though. I think it is more about the melody and just that it is a fun kind of bouncy hymn to sing. So it would be cool to see if there is another text. Like now I'm like, oh, I want to go. Yeah, we, we could check. Text. You know, the funny thing is it's so established. I think no matter what, what text you put it to, people would, be, would think of Onward Christian exactly. Soldiers. But still you wouldn't be singing those, those words. And, and I think in our tradition and certainly in the Episcopal tradition, in America anyway, and in, certainly in this part of the country, but, but maybe a variety of places in the country, I think nobody is too keen to try to make the church more militant as opposed right. to less militant because you know clearly that's not that's not been successful in the right. long term over the years. So it's funny that, that it's odd in a way that that one actually made that that one's in the 1980 hymn. So that's an example. Mm -hmm. In a way, they were trying to be very cutting edge, and another way, you know, they kept some what we call chestnuts mm. that that uh, might not make the cut today. You know, so right. so yes. So you touched on this a little bit um, when picking hymns for services, you know, you try to match them to the readings for the day, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit more about the intention that you put into with picking hymns and with picking anthems to match services. Yeah. Um, so, you know, interesting, one, everybody's got their hard, their difficult things about, about uh, the times we're living in now, and of course the most difficult is people being sick and, and, and dying. I mean, it's the, that's the real tragedy, but then there are all the little tragedies that, that you know, and I have since... 1992, I think, or three, I have planned the entire year of anthems in the summer to the mm. year prior. So by August 1st, I have every anthem laid out. And some years I've done the hymns as well. Uh, we, we, did, we did that this past year here at Grace. We, had, we planned the hymns in advance. Uh, my wonderful associate, David Hines, wanted to use the hymns. Sometimes the hymns are a great jumping off point for what you're going to play as the opening or closing voluntary. You yeah. might choose a voluntary either by the composer of the hymn or in the same key as the hymn, that, that kind of thing. Um, and so David wanted to choose. So we did the hymns for this whole past year. So it's a great exercise, and I can't really imagine doing it any other way. I have friends who choose music two or three weeks in advance, you know, as they go along, um, but, and everybody has to decide. But it makes it a really wonderful exercise because I sit down then, well, in the old days, I sat down with the lectionary book, now I sit down with the computer mm -hmm. and the lectionary page and go through the collect of the day, the readings, both the Old Testament, New Testament, the Psalm, and the Gospel. And those are the things that can, are the jumping off points for informing what I might do, particularly for an anthem, and, and then the hymn. Now the hymnal has a wonderful guide that they put out every year that gives you suggestions for each, oh, each day. Cool. And they put little diamonds or stars or something by the ones that are particularly appropriate. So, <laughs> uh, and so I use that guide, you know, and it's very helpful, and, and I can choose hymns really quickly, and I think pretty successfully. Um, every once in a while I'll look at the list and I'm like, yep, nothing here I want to do. So we just pick, you know, praise the Lord, the almighty, cause that, mm -hmm. you can't go wrong with that. Um, but the anthems, uh, so yes, I use all those readings. My greatest source for anthems is the Psalm because the Psalm of the day of either that Psalm or verses from the Psalm have likely been set by likely more than one composer over the centuries. Uh, because the Psalms have just been a go-to for composition. For, so that's often what I start, I'll go to, there's a wonderful, we have, I mean, we have a, a good music library here at Grace and it's, it's all organized and on Excel and I can look things up alphabetically so I can see what we have. 
but also there's the Coral Public Domain Library, which you probably know about. It's the free online right. uh, music that's in public domain and you don't have to buy. You can simply print it and, and copy it because music's expensive and mm -hmm. we have a big choir. So, you know, we buying one anthem that costs three ninety five can be a major expense for us. But in CPDL, you can also search. You can type in. So if the, the psalm is Psalm 34 for that Sunday, you can actually in CPDL type in Psalm 34. You can also search another way. You can type in the first line of the psalm in Latin, and you can do all these searches, and any composition that has been done related to Psalm 34 that they have will come up. Mm. And, and then, of course, then it's free, which is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, so we have lots and lots, and you, you know, because you know how you, a lot of our music is simply printed on the copy of that CPDL music and often chosen with a connection to the psalm. Mm. Which, and since the psalms are our, are our, would be the sung part of the readings that we do, Historically, in the you know that we think the psalms were sung uh, as they were written, they were written to be sung. It makes sense to connect them to more singing. Mm. Um, so that's you know that's usually the way. And sometimes there's a gospel. Sometimes you read it's the Gospel of John, and the, it's the gospel is if you love me, keep my commandments. And you think we'll probably sing the talus if you love me, keep my commandments, or one of the many other settings of that. So it it can come from from the readings in Advent. Uh, often there are Isaiah readings that that are the text that Handel used for the Christmas portion of Messiah, Comfort Ye, mm -hmm. Every Valley, um, the Golly, yes, yeah, all these sorts of things. So you, sometimes I see those and I think, oh yes, we'll do that. You know, I try not to just churn out the same thing every every lectionary cycle. Oh, it's year C, so we're going to do XX. I, I always do what I call zero-based choosing, like you do zero-based budgeting. Mm -hmm. You start with a blank slate. Now, my brain will tell me, oh, I love to do that on this Sunday, and I'll do that. But, but I, I don't look at a list and fill in from, a, from three years before. I always try to start something new. And something that, will, you know, you wanna, something that your choir can do, but that will challenge the choir. Um, so usually I would say we do about, well, this year there's nothing usual. But in usual years, since I've been at Grace, I would say we do about 50 to 60% new music each year. Mm. And the rest is music from our repertoire already that we've done. Great. And hymns, similarly, again, you really use that, that hymnal guide, uh, which is, is super helpful. And, uh, and, and over the doing this for, you know, however many years now, almost 30 years, obviously, you, you know, you learn and develop. Right. You have your arsenal of knowledge. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's, it gets a little quicker every year, I imagine. It does, yes. Yes. Yeah, I can do it. It used to take me several weeks to do this. And if I concentrate, I can plan a year pretty carefully with, with some new music and, you know, not, I mean, as I say, in, in about a week, I can pull that off. So, wow. and, then, and then it's great because then you're free. All you have to do is do it. Right. Then you look forward to just starting to get to do all that music, you know, mm -hmm. and get on it. So. This is making me want to sing. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> Um, so what about Evensong? Because that is such a big part of the Episcopal Church. How do you plan an Evensong? Mm -hmm. Evensong is one of my favorite things. I know you love it yeah, too. Yeah, I love it. Um, and so there's some givens for Evensong. Uh, I mean, Evensong, first of all, I should say to people listening, Evensong can be done very simply. Um, there's, there's that great meme that was going around on Facebook. You probably saw it, and I think I put it on the bulletin board, and it said when, uh, what people think I mean when I say I love church music and it shows like a like a rock praise band with like a light show in an auditorium and right. it's just what I mean and it shows a vested choir in an English chapel or <laughs> cathedral singing Evensong. You know. Right. Um, so, but Evensong can be done, you know, very, very simply with just some plain song, uh, you know, one line of music being sung. But, but that's, you know, that's, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it can be lovely. But mostly when people attend and go to Evensong, certainly in a big place like Grace in a church like this, they want to see a vested choir and hear hear lots of you know big music and settings of the canticles and all that. So, mm -hmm. 
So for evensong, you know basically you need a Magnificat and a Nunc Dimittis. Those are the two canticles associated with evening prayer, the Song of Mary from Luke and the Song of Simeon from Luke. Um, they're, you know, they're similar canticles for morning prayer and other things, but those are the two for evensong. And there have been thousands upon thousands of settings of those composed over the years. And I'm, you know, I still discover, I just this past week we did a different one for a, a broadcast, and, and it was one I'd never done, and, and it had been sitting under my nose, and it's like my new favorite. So, cool. Um, the praises and responses, the, the bit where the priest or the officiant says or sings something, and then either the choir or the congregation sings back, you can either do it super simply, uh, just with plain song, or there's, there are hundreds and hundreds of settings for the mm -hmm. choir, and then usually an anthem. And at an even song, the advantage is you can do a larger scale anthem. So we try on Sunday morning. I don't plan 15 minute anthems or even 12 minute anthems on Sunday morning because it, it throws it throws the service out of kilter. And um, and so at even song though, you know, like we when we did uh, the Finzi Low, the full final sacrifice, mm -hmm. and you know those, these massive anthems that are that or fares the heaven even yeah. that takes it. Oh. So yeah, I know. So you you can <laughs> and you can also wallow in it and enjoy it at even song because nobody's counting the minutes and nobody's counting the minutes uh, to. Uh, uh, you know, is it is church going too long? They're there for music and prayer, really. There's not a there's not a sermon. There's not a, I mean, there could be a sermon, but that that isn't necessarily the focus. Usually, it's really about the music and the experience. So, there's a revival in Evensong. Certainly in um, in this country, there's more interest in it. And in England, the cathedrals where they are struggling to get Sunday morning congregations, they are getting Evensong congregations at mm. the at the cathedrals. I, Why I think, do you think that is? Well, I think, well, there's, there's research, so I think you, know, you could Google that and probably find out more information. But I think two things. That while it's church, the, the Evensong is church, uh, church service, not being Eucharistic, it's less defining. Uh, you know, your, yeah. your belief system could be, could be different. And, uh, and so the, um, you, you can say, I, I love spirituality. I love, I love the beauty of the music. I love the candlelight. You know, I feel good about that. I'm not sure I'm a, a, a devout believing Christian yet. And, and it would be easier to immerse yourself in Evensong, I think, mm. than necessarily a Sunday Eucharist. And I think that's what's, I think people are responding to that. The, the ritual, the, it's, there's, it's filled with ritual, often a lot of candlelight. People love candlelight. It's a mm. simple, Gotta it's a simple equation, but it's a incense. simple thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so you were mentioning that Evensong might be a lower barrier to entry for people who may not want to fully engage in the church but might be interested um can you talk a little bit about how music can be an invitation to this church and how music can actually you know leave the church and and be meaningful to people in other ways yeah it's 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 probably the there are two things that are probably the best tool for this that people respond to music is one and i would say outreach is maybe the other because people helping people is something people relate to again whether they've identified as christian or they're sure they believe in god but most people even these days, most people still agree that helping people is a good thing. <laughs> so, right. so churches have used both of those as effective tools to draw people in. So, you know, we, we, we feed the poor every Saturday afternoon. We have a soup kitchen, you know, and we're looking for volunteers. Some people say, yeah, I'm not going to church, but I'm happy to ladle up soup for people who need food. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the musical side of that can be, like we talked about Evensong, you don't, you're not going to Mass, but you could come and listen to our, you know, our choirs. We have a really nice choir. You could listen to them sing, and it's, the church is beautiful, and it's, it's calming. And people say, I could, you know, I could do that. Another service that's, that in the right setting can do that even in some ways more than even some is Compline, which is the, mm. the, the late night sort of service. We have morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, and Compline are sort of what we have taken from all the daily offices of the ancient church. 
And Compline has really made uh, some inroads these days and can be done in a variety of ways, again, very simply. We've done it here at Grace, uh, you know, where we put hundreds of candles out and it's done Love with it. chant, you've sung it. Yeah. We, have, we have a women's group, we've had a men's group. Um, if you do it, particularly like near a college campus, I mean, we're sort of like surrounded by college campuses, but, but some places like Christchurch, New Haven, I mentioned my first place, their biggest service every week is Compline. Mm. Uh, they have a congregation on Sunday morning, but they sit on the Yale campus and they do a nine o'clock Compline and they, they pay their, their pro choir to be at Compline. And that's where they put a lot of resources behind it. And they often get between 100 and 200 undergrad students who come wow. in for this. It's, it's non-participatory other than your own experience of it. Now, like, like we do it here, the congregation doesn't have a leaflet. They don't sing. They don't speak. They, they just come in and experience it. Totally experiential, which I think is really, if somebody's a seeker, that's really attractive because you don't have to interact. You don't have to, you know, you just can be and let mm. this sort of stuff wash over you. Now, my last parish in Norwalk, I was at St. Paul's on the Green for 12 years, and we started Compline my first, about my third Sunday there, I guess. And they are, so it's been now 12, 17 years, they are still singing Compline every Sunday night at St. Paul's in Norwalk. Wow. And it really did become, we, it didn't get a huge crowd, we usually got between 20 and 30 people. But over the years, we saw sometimes people would go for a year, two years, and then they would show up maybe at an even song. And then they'd maybe show up at a Sunday morning. And we got some really deeply involved, committed parishioners that started by going to Compton in the dark for a period of months before they would put their foot into Sunday morning. Mm. So, you know, it's not about, it's not like, I don't want to make it sound like a fly trap where you're trying to grab people. <laughs> what, what we want to do, because the church for years has put up barriers. That's, that's what the church is really good at. And I mean, the church in general. Right. And the Episcopal Church is certainly no slacker at it, at putting mm. up barriers. Uh, both physical and, and otherwise spiritual. So what we can use music for, like outreach, is to lower those barriers or remove them altogether so people can step over and feel like they've been drawn in by something they relate to. And most people relate to music. Now, not everybody loves Anglican church music, but most people relate to music of some kind. You know, most people don't say, I hate music. I mean, it's pretty rare to hear. <laughs> um, so if you can use that as a way to show folks, get them through the door and find out it is a caring community, I also say this about music, it's very important. Generally, music will not keep people somewhere. Mm. Uh, so it, it can be a vehicle to get folks in, it can be a barrier breaker, and it needs to be good. It, it, you know, now if they came to something and it was beautiful and they came the following Sunday, decided they wanted to try it and the music was awful, they, they might feel duped and go away. So I'm not saying the music, it needs to stay good, but that won't be the only factor that will keep people. It will be the music brings them in, and then they hear a really fine sermon. They get a, first more important than that. They get a really warm welcome at the door, a genuine warm welcome, not a not a oh God, finally somebody we can get to pledge, but a, like we're really happy to have you here, and people know the dis difference instantly. Mm -hmm. uh, they hear a, a good sermon, you know, a, a strong. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be even a really powerful sermon, but just a solid sermon of good theology, and that lets people know that people are included. And then the real thing these days, you know, in the Episcopal Church, open communion is not, not really a thing, technically. I mean, it's not, you know, the canons don't allow for saying you can come and have communion if you haven't been baptized. The canons don't allow for that. Oh, but, I didn't know that in the Episcopal Church. Yeah, it's, okay. you, technically, you're supposed to be a baptized Christian. You don't have to be a baptized Episcopalian, but a baptized Christian. I see. But over the last, well, certainly 5, 10 years and 15, 20 years, many congregations, many, many priests have gone out on a limb and said, and, you know, 
our table is open. Now, and different bishops react in different ways to that. Some, some sort of, it's sort of a don't ask, don't tell, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, in my parish in Connecticut, they very, very actively pronounced that. Every, it was printed in the leaflet and the priest said it every week. The bishop there um, years ago, and this was a different priest and a different bishop, so it doesn't matter that I'm talking about it, but the bishop there would say, when, when he would visit, he would say, I, I won't say it, but you don't have to take it out of your leaflet. You know, mm. As the bishop, I can't say it because it, you know, I really would be violating my, my canonical vows. Mm-hmm. But, but I won't make you take it out of your leaflet on the day I'm there. Mm. Um, so they were really committed to that. I, it, it, is, it is our feeling here at Grace Church. I mean, you know, we, we, we say it in sort of different ways. But, but that, that open table has often been the last barrier for people. And so music might draw you in the door. You get a warm welcome. You hear an intelligent sermon that doesn't tell you you're going to just burn in hell just because you are. And then, and then the big point of most Episcopal services these days is the Eucharist. Most Episcopal services are Eucharistic. And so that's, that's where we head in the service. That's our, our point. Right. And then, and then the, the, the final sort of biggie is if you hear, maybe you're a baptized Christian, maybe you're not, maybe you don't know, maybe you don't remember, you know, maybe you went to church somewhere else, whatever, you can come. Even if you're not sure if you believe, it's sort of that belong before you believe. And, and that's controversial. Probably some people right now are starting to twitch because I'm saying it. But... But it, it, it has shown and proven that, that people respond so powerfully to that, that invitation, that open, you know, the, the, the barrier being taken away in front of the table. But that often starts with music. Mm-hmm. And so if you can, if you're, you have to look at your community, if you're out in the uh, field in the you know, rural area in the country, you're not going to have people walking by your front door. So, so opening the doors and doing music necessarily isn't going to be helpful. But, you know, certainly for us here in the middle of the city, it, right. we need to have those doors open as much as possible. And if people put their heads in and see a beautiful space, which we happen to have, and hear something beautiful at the same time, those two things are really, really powerful. They may not join Grace Church, but Grace Church will become part of them in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's, that has to be our underlying goal with any of, of this, is what is this going to do to, and I use this word very carefully, but what is it going to do to evangelize? And I mean in a, in a, in a good and healthy and positive way, not in a go-get-em way. Right. Um, because that's what, that's, and to grow. Because if we don't grow, the church, the church can die like anything else. And so I've tried to use music in the, over my years in the church, the Episcopal church particularly, as a tool of growth in, in partnership with the rector, the vestry, to try to continue to grow the work of the church in the walls and, and outside the walls. Every time somebody comes here and has a good musical experience and then goes to their office the next week, even if they didn't join Grace Church, they had the most wonderful feeling on Sunday. I went to this even song and it was beautiful. My gosh, it was really you know sort of transformative. It gave me calm. And they're, they're telling their, their office, their coworkers, mm-hmm. that's outreach from Grace Church. It's very indirect, but you know, of course, feeding people and clothing people is, is those are the ultimate commands from Christ, and we should do it. But there are lots of ways to go even beyond that, and and that kind of conversation that we've inspired, that's also outreach because they're sharing something wonderful that happened, and that's that's what that is. So, I like to think that we're making that happen, you know, on some level. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so I feel like another form of outreach that you do really well here at Grace is your courser program where you are really trying to build it up inviting young kids to join the choir learn about music about the church um can you talk a little bit about you know how you have started the courser program and you know kind of the the tenets of how you run it sure um this i guess you know of, of all my sort of callings i feel like i've had in the church 
I started working with kids in Tennessee when I was in seventh grade. I started working with the youngest kids in the you know the little angel choir or cherub like, choir. Like how old? Well, those kids were probably you know five and six, wow. and I was maybe twelve. And mm. and so I started working with them. Uh, you know they call them cherub choirs, and we all know they're never cherubs uh, or angel choir. We know they're never angels. But uh, so I, I loved working with kids from from an early from an early time. And then one of the things that that really stood out when I'm especially once I came to the Northeast and. At the, in those days, hearing like a, the men and boys choir at St. Thomas, you know, Fifth Avenue, and, and I didn't care that it was boys as opposed to boys and girls. I just loved the sound mm-hmm. uh, and the concept of children that age delivering music like an adult would. Mm-hmm. And to this day, and if anybody can think of an example, I'm happy to hear it. But my friend, my good friend John Abdenauer, who's at St. Paul's in Fairfield, still says, and I think he's right. I don't know of any other activity where children and adults participate and contribute at the same level. Because if you think about the youth symphonies that are all around, brilliant youth symphonies, Mm -hmm. and they might invite one of the youth symphony members to come and do a special, you know, something with the with the principal symphony. But they don't invite them to be a member of the principal symphony. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly not in multiples. They don't have ten or fifteen kids that are you know, the Chicago Youth Symphony doesn't put ten or fifteen of their youth symphony into the Chicago Symphony and you know on a regular basis. Right. Um, certainly sports. I mean it's you know not the same thing at all and physically for some reasons you know couldn't be but uh it's it's really a rare thing where children and adults can come together in a common goal with a common goal a common skill that children can develop as easily and if not more easily than adults sometimes um and can and can contribute at the same level or higher level even than the adults say the volunteers in the adult choir or, or even sometimes some of the professionals so uh, it, so it's an amazing and rare thing. Uh, it, it gives us the opportunity to teach kids about music because certainly some schools have good music programs, but we also know many many don't. It's often what gets cut first, you know, school music and art and that sort of thing. So we can we can help chink those cracks. Um, I use it here and have as we we want to make it also a gateway to the church. We we don't require anything. So most of our kids here are kids who are already associated with Grace Church. We've had a few over the years that have come. Outside from outside the Grace community and joined us mm-hmm. um, with varying degrees of success. But one thing that's been clear they've they've been we've been clear with them that Grace Church is open to them as a community if they want to be part of it. But they can also simply sing in the choir. Now they have to come to Grace Church because that's what the choir does. But right. they don't have to become an Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be Christian. I, you know, I've had kids of a number of backgrounds in choir. Um, so it's it's a really unique. Thing you know, in England, the the cathedral choirs where the boys and now most of the cathedrals have a girls' choir as well, or they've got a combined choir. Um, that you know, the church again, church at its worst, you know, keeping keeping women at bay. Um, but that that hope you know that barrier has mightily been smashed, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. But it's it's a common thing in England. Most people know about those cathedral choirs, and they know about it here. You often are even in even in a city, you might you have to. When I came to Grace, you sort of even though there was a history of it at Grace, there had been a little bit of a little bit of a break. And, and as we talk to new parishioners, you have to explain what you're talking about. So it's not a kiddie choir. You know, we're not going to stand them on the steps and have them be cute. Is there, is there anything wrong with that? I, I probably think yes, but but not really. But why would you do that when you could actually give them some substance, you know? Right. Uh, and so it's been an amazing thing to do. One of the biggest disappointments, and as, as you certainly know this, we, we had planned a trip to England to yeah. this summer, for our, this past summer for our choristers, and we were they were so ready and we were going to sing uh, at Lincoln Cathedral for a week, and so, uh, which is one of the greatest cathedrals in, in really in Europe. 
So you know that COVID took that from us, and, and we'll we'll have to rebuild from from that. But but it was great watching them get ready to do this and to go sort of to the sort of to the home country, as it were, where this tradition from which this tradition comes. So uh, and and we have we have resumed meeting with the kids uh, very safely and as safely as possible. Right now we have to see you know how things go. We've divided them in half so that we have really small groups, and we have this wonderful space at Grace, the pavilion, where we can open doors and get good ventilation and. And we spread them 14 feet apart, and they stay masked and do all that. But but they, it's been wonderful because they're so happy to be back. Mm-hmm. And just yesterday, we worked on a setting of the Magnificat and Nugdimidus that I had written, and they had started on the mag before the nunc they hadn't done. And it was just amazing to watch them unpack a new piece of music, you know, right before your very eyes. Yeah. So uh, it's it's great, and 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 every church should try to do it on some level. I mean, and if it means it's, if you have one kid, then maybe you you know you invite them to sing with your small adult choir. If you have three or four kids, you know you have to figure out what's right for your place. You don't try to make it be the same everywhere. Not everybody's going to be King's College, Cambridge, you know. But but we we mustn't ignore the kids because, and I think you mentioned earlier, what, you know, what, what's the why of this besides what they're getting now? We've got to we've got to fill the choir pews when they're adults, and and you know these are people who are going to go into it. They may take a break in college. They may, you know, sleep in on Sundays or what. I mean, who, you know, that's fine. It's normal. <laughs> who cares? Uh, some of them don't. Some go. I've had kids who've graduated and they say, "I'm going here for." Actually, we have a, a young woman who's a senior right now, and she's already been in touch with me about the college where she's going. And will I be in touch with the Episcopal Church choir director in that town because she wants to sing in the choir there? Yeah. So it can it can really do that. But even if they take a break, when they come back someday whether it's because they have kids or whatever, and they hear that the adult choir needs members, you know, they're going to they're gonna probably do it, and they'll go with a skill level that will be way ahead. Even if they haven't sung for a while, that'll be way ahead of most. So it's, it's, it's helping to sustain our future is, is the other, other thing about it. Mm. And what is your setup here? You know, how often do you meet with your chorus or choir, and, and when do they sing with the adult choir? Right, so it's, it's uh, to be completely honest, it's a little less than I would like, um, mm-hmm. because when I came to Grace, that, that wasn't actually part of my, um, my charge. Was they, I was asked if I would be willing to sing, make music with the Sunday school kids every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm happy to do that. I said, that's not been my history. I said, I normally do, you know, done a little bit more than that with kids, and it, or would we be open to that here? And, you know, yes, and so we took a year or so to figure out what that might look like. So our kids uh, in non-COVID times meet once a week uh, and they would come on Friday afternoons and they would have, we would rehearse for an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes and then we'd have pizza together. Um, We offer piano lessons to any chorister who is in good standing, meaning people who are committed to the program and showing up, as long as you're doing that. Uh, between uh, David and, and me, we will we will provide piano free of charge to the kids as long as we can accommodate it schedule-wise. Mm-hmm. So that's a plus. And we had about, pre-COVID, we had about nine of our kids, I think, taking piano, oh, oh, a little over half, wow. which was great because it makes them much better musicians in the yeah. choir. Um, and then uh, we have, last year, we got our first change voice boy. So one of the boys, boys uh, his voice broke. Mm-hmm. And so... Fortunately, it happened in the year when we had added the position, the assistant position, and it's great because then we could div- divvy up. And now we have two boys who have changed voices, so David or I can take them and work with them while the other person is with the trebles. We can break them out, and that's been that. That's really important because then the young boys see that there. This is what happens when you when you go on. You right. know, your voice breaks. There's a place for you. It's not a you know, not a wonderment. And then, uh, so, and then they would sing roughly twice a month with the adult choir. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they'd do a treble anthem, you know, just music for upper voices. But generally, they simply sang whatever the adult choir was singing. And you, you certainly know they've done even songs with us. We did the Howl's Mag and Nunk this past November. Uh, 
oh gosh, almost a year ago now, hard to believe. Mm-hmm. They've done some concerts with us. They did, we did part one of Messiah last year with orchestra and they okay. sang all of that. Teaching those kids, we, we do choir camp, I should say. The uh, second week of August, we go away to uh, Incarnation uh, Center in, in Ivoryton, Connecticut, and we spend a week in residence there, parents as chaperones, and we're there along with other choirs, and we, we get ready for the year. So we started Messiah last summer at choir camp, and watching those kids bite into Messiah is just extraordinary. And you know, still to this day, if I go, if I play a G minor chord, they start singing, and He shall purify. I mean, yeah. just like that's what they do. And they, so it's so we've we've been able to do a lot, given that it's really one rehearsal a week. Most programs like this would be two usually, and might sing maybe three or four times a week. I mean, you know, a month with you know with the choir. So we we've sort of landed with this, and it feels okay for Grace again. I underline you have to do what's right for the community you're in and, and, and that sort of thing. So, so I'm, I'm happy we've made the jump. We have the Change Voice Boys. We've made that jump. We have, uh, and then we have a, a training choir, uh, which I think right now we have seven or eight kids in the training choir. And, and they have also resumed. We've divided them in half, so we have COVID space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they meet for 45 minutes once a week. And, uh, it's, and they can start as early as four. And then when I think they're ready, usually once they're in, say, first or second grade in reading, then they can move into choristers. Um, but it just gets them the idea of, of being in choir. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we have a number of siblings, you know, so that you have a young sibling who's in training choir and their older siblings in choristers. That's so awesome. And, you know, singing with the choristers is one of my favorite parts. You know, every time there's a chorister Sunday, I'm always, you know calling them to be to sandwich me well you're the very self. and you're very popular they they like to stand they 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 don't get to usually choose where they stand but they nobody doesn't like to stand next to mo so <laughs> <laughs> it's a great thing it's a i just have to say i'm, I'm glad grace has, has embraced it because again it is what we should it is what we should do and i think there are some shoulds and you know you can you can you can do it in a variety of ways but i think the concept of having kids that, that want to do it. Not every kid wants to be a singer. No, they don't have to be. But but creating the vehicle, I think, is really important. So I, I feel, you know, I feel like we've done it in a healthy way, and we have healthy numbers, and uh, and enough that we can continue to attract kids to it. And you know, once once we're out of this time, whenever that will be, we can go back to some of the. I mean, we've booked for choir camp for next summer. You know, God willing, hopefully we'll be able to go. But mm-hmm. we've already we've already booked our space for the second week of August, and I'm I'm hopeful. So. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I had so much fun listening Aww. to your depth of knowledge on the hymnal and music in general and, you know, how you make it all work here at Grace. So I, I really appreciate you being here. Well, it's, I can tell you it's one of the most fun things I've done in a long time. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley. We would like to thank Mario Aconde and Jack Zornado for the music, Taylor Wilkie and Ivy Swinsky, our producers, as well as our guests today. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias. Such song is rest and food and deep delight. To saints forgiven, let them all unite in.